Hello, my friends. Welcome to another Live with Matt Rad. As always, we are sponsored by nobody. We just do this all for free. All we ask in return is that you share it with somebody. I'm doing this intro from a hotel room, actually on my iPhone, because I forgot to bring a microphone cable with me <laughs> to the destination I am at right now. Um, so I'm going to airdrop this into a Pro Tools session, and we will, uh, we'll see how it shakes out. Had a great conversation with Kean today. He's fresh off winning a Grammy a couple of weeks ago for the St. Vincent album, which is incredible. As I say on the live, and as I've said many times to many people, I think Kean is the most underrated mix engineer in the music industry. He's obviously just won a Grammy. He's starting to get his recognition, but uh, he's one of my favorite people. I've known him a long time, and we had a great chat. And we talked about the Grammy process, making the St. Vincent album, and then we get into some technical mixing stuff as well. And uh, it's just always a pleasure to talk to him. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Here's my conversation with Kean. Hello. What's up, buddy? Can you, can you hear me? I can. Hello, your friends. Hello, my friends, your friends, <laughs> all of our friends. How are you doing, man? I'm good, dude. How are, uh, how are you? Where are you? I'm currently in New York, just for about 24 hours on my way to Mexico and then probably London. And I'm actually figuring that all out today, but was in North Carolina at my, my cousin's not wedding, but wedding celebration because she got married during COVID. Um, so I think like many of us, <laughs> I have a wedding every like five weeks for the next six months. Uh, yeah. Everybody, make, everybody up catching up. <clears throat> yeah, man. Um, how are awesome. you doing? How's, how's LA? LA is great. A little gloomy at the moment, but, uh, you know, it's good. I'm actually, I'm heading to Texas tomorrow to visit some family. So excited to, uh, to travel, traveling with the child is a whole new adventure. <laughs> yeah. How much time are you taking off? Uh, just like five or six days. It's my wife's spring break. So, um, we're trying to make the most of it, but yeah, just, you know, I'm still like, post the virus not that we're post it whatever but it's still exciting to fly and go places like i just i feel excited it could be anywhere and i'm just like let's fucking go, <laughs> I go well, as i'm sure you're aware um the te texas and many parts of the south don't seem to have uh the, much of the virus in their consciousness so you'll get yeah. to uh, experience a little more regular life absolutely yeah back to normal there it's it's been that way pretty much since the beginning i believe <laughs> Well, since we last spoke, and you know it's coming, uh, you went from uh, Grammy-nominated, Grammy-losing uh, mix engineer, producer, drummer, dear friend of mine, to Grammy-winning. Uh, I love your website change where you crossed out losing and, and wrote winning. Um, congratulations. Yeah. How are you Thank feeling? You. Does it feel like a big thing? Was it, what was the... Tell, tell us about it. Um, yeah, what a, what, a, what a ride it was. I mean, you know having gone through a little bit of this cycle like eight years ago for a record I had far less involvement in. Um, it, it was definitely different this time around. It was like, I think the lead up to it was a little bit more nerves in the sense that I, I genuinely thought that we could win, you know, like before it was like in the first time for the Nickel Creek record that I worked on with Eric, you know, I, I worked on that record, but I didn't, I didn't have a real sense of ownership uh, over mm -hmm. it or a sense of pride in the same way that I do with this one. And I think going into this, it was like, fuck, like I'm a little nervous. And Sunday, uh, the day of the Grammys, I was definitely like a bag of nerves. I tried to watch, you know, the category that I was in, the alternative category is not like on the prime time thing. So they have this daytime ceremony, which I had never tried to watch before, but they streamed it. And I was like, cool, like, you know, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll watch it. This thing was like fucking four hours long. And we got like two and a half hours in and, and my daughter was just like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, can we not? <laughs> this is like, this is really dumb. Your two-year-old's so, like, dad, can you just go like play with some blocks or something? This is yeah. boring as shit. <laughs> oh my God. And so I was just like, you know, honestly, I, I didn't feel this way until the day. And I was like, man, I, I'm, I just feel apprehensive i just kind of want to know you know i don't I want to know if we win or lose like i don't really care i just want it to be over you know and so i, I went out and i took uh, lila out my, my daughter on her scooter and we just like walked around the neighborhood and ended up getting a facetime from emma my wife it was like you won and it was just like kind of kind of the best way to find out you know to just be like out with my kid and then uh yeah it, it was super fun it was it was a little overwhelming to kind of just hear from 
everyone all at once, you know, from all walks of life, whether it's music community, people, family, you know, all over the world. It was just like, you know, half the day was just spent trying to, you know, be thankful and, and say hi to people and all of that stuff. And it was just fun. It, w- it was super celebratory. It felt like I feel proud of it. It was the record to beat, you know, like I went in, listened to the other records like the previous week, like start to finish to just be like, hey, w- what's the real what's the real deal here? What are we up against? And I, I just felt like we should win this fucking Grammy. And, uh, and we did. So it was cool. It was fucking awesome. Uh, an experience I hope everyone gets to enjoy sometime. <laughs> but I feel great about it. It's still kind of like every time it gets brought up, it's still like exciting. It's pretty cool. Well, it's, it's well-deserved. And um, so with the, with the Nickel Creek album that you were nominated for, you were an engineer. And as you and I both know, and many other people are, I've discovered in the last five or eight years with Eric going on YouTube and sharing lots of things. Eric Valentine albums are really Eric Valentine albums in the best way where he really spearheads things. And, you know, I engineered a couple of things. You, you, I think were more involved in engineering projects with him. Um, but you feel like this one, which is what, so on this is the St. Vincent album, best alternative album. You mm-hmm. mixed it. You played some drums. Did you record things as well? What was your yeah, actual the- involvement in all of it? The recording of the record was kind of, um, you know, it started, you know, the summer before COVID. Um, and it was it was interesting because we started kind of recording material for this album before I had Lila. So kind of we had this run of work where I was working with Annie and we scored a movie and, and a lot of we just spent a lot of time recording stuff. And what so, was the movie? The movie is a movie that she did with Carrie Brownstein called uh, The Nowhere Inn. It was basically kind of like this you know, this dark humor parody of St. Vincent playing herself. And it was super fun. And, you know, it was the first time, like, really digging in on a movie score and just the two of us, like, just making noise. And so in that process, there were, like, times where things, ideas would come and and they were like, oh, this is, like, more song, you know, type vibe, less, like, cue for a movie. Mm. And, um, And so it was, you know, just me and her in her studio. And and there'd be a lot of opportunities where we would just kind of jam on ideas, you know, like she'd play guitar or bass or something else. And, or even if like, we got some sort of synth modular thing down, be like, you know, you can only kind of program so much or especially with my skill set. Like I'm a rudimentary drum programmer. Um, and like, even though I'm not the best drummer, it's a lot easier for me to just like get behind a drum set and just kind of execute whatever ideas are in my head and so that was the case with a couple of those songs where i was just around for the genesis and it and so it you were actually of, jamming together you were playing drums and she would play guitar a, a lot for a lot of them yeah and then there were two the, the the one the first song on the record is a song pay your way in pain and that's mm-hmm. this kind of very hooky eurythmicsy uh like modular thing that she came up with and in that case, that was just me. Like she was just driving Pro Tools, and I was just playing drums and hacking out ideas. And um, you know, and eventually, what happened was we recorded a couple songs, or at least the beginnings of a couple songs. Um, and then uh, she went and and linked up with Jack Antonoff in New York and his engineer Laura Sisk. Um, uh, congratulations to them, also. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, and then they basically finished the record at Electric Ladyland, or at least all of the instrumentation. And, you know, this was kind of like during COVID. So they were, you know, this is probably like April, May 2020. So, um, you know, it was just a tight group. And I think, you know, Jack ended up playing a lot of the instruments uh, on the record as well. And, you know, I think a little bit out of uh, necessity just because, you know, that that was the vibe in early 2020. But then also I think it was just fun for them to like just kind of keep a tight group um, and just like you know, p- put it all together. And so uh, there were there were just a couple of instances where the drums just kind of got baked into the production. You know, it wasn't like I got hired to play drums on the song. It was just like I was around and it's cool. The best idea wins, you know, and, and I props to Jack and Annie for, you know, just not allowing allowing my drums to stay in there, you know, which is <laughs> fucking fun. Um, so then, you know, they, they basically finish it. Annie did most of the vocals herself at home. Um, and then we just kind of jumped right into mixing. It was just kind of like it all happened very, very quickly. You know, by the time they were finishing production, we were just like mixing. And, you know, the mixing was challenging because, again, 
this is the era of COVID where we, you know, me and my wife were taking things very seriously. So there was no, there was just no in-person anything. And, uh, uh, that, that was tough. You know, I think like it would have been a lot more fun to be in a room together to kind of like, cause, cause you know, anyone that's listened to the record, it's, it's definitely, um, it's a vibe, right? It, a lot of these, the, the sonics and stuff are like big moving, swirling, like just lots of kind of real committed aesthetics, um, that were a little tough to do remotely, you know? So it was a lot of revisions, not in the sense of a normal revision where it's like, Hey, can you turn this up or down? It was like, this isn't right. Let's try something else. You're and, trying things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was cool. You know, she was super into letting me try stuff. And again, best idea wins. No egos. Jack, um, same thing. Like he would have his thoughts. He had kind of really executed everything that he could. And so he, he left us with a lot to work with. And, um, and then, yeah, it just, you know, came together, uh, got through the revision process and, um, you know, and then had a record. Did you, I know you've been, been, been working with Annie with St. Vincent for a number of years. Did you, did you have any hand in helping her figure out or set up gear to record herself? Were you involved at that? Like, you know, what mics, what the chain is, that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, we had kind of done, you know, the, the trajectory with Annie was, was pretty cool in the sense we met um, on the Slater Kinney record that we did um, the previous year. And she so produced. So she produced it. I ended up engineering it and um, we kind of built a rapport from there. Uh, and it just kind of like, as soon as we finished that record, she was like, do you want to keep working on stuff? You know, cause she's just constantly either producing other stuff or writing stuff for movies or working on her own stuff. Like she's definitely a, a musical engine and just kind of constantly creating. So it was just fun because, you know, I would just go up to her house and like, we would, just do stuff and a lot of what the past especially the past year has been she's really gotten into wanting to be an engineer like she wants to understand the process um and she's always been an engineer she's always recorded her own stuff um she's always kind of been heavy-handed in that process but i think in this record especially kind of going into this aesthetic of like the kind of early 70s you know, she realized that, you know, the gear and, and the, the method of recording has a lot more to do with that sound. And so she just kind of dug in and it's been a lot of like me just teaching her what I know, um, you know, like lending her gear, uh, you know, helping her shepherd her like, OK, if you want to buy a vintage microphone, we got her uh, an RCA 77 that she sang a lot of the vocals into. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of like not hand-holding, but just like, she'd be like, hey, what would you try on this? And I'd be like, I would try this through this pre, through this compressor. And then we'd go from there. They'd be back and forth. She'd send me files. It'd be like, you know, maybe on this song, do something a little brighter or something like that. Like there's a lot of back and forth. And so now you it's did a, that, you did that beforehand, before COVID hit, but then once COVID hit, you had already set up enough things with her. And obviously she's a, a very capable engineer. You have a lot of expertise. You would set up various vocal chains and things that could work well for her. <clears throat> totally. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and it just kind of evolved even like during COVID, even though we hadn't seen each other for a year, there was just constant communication, FaceTime, just like, you know, she was just there in her studio and I had enough of a sense of it at that point, having worked there that I knew I was like, okay, use this, like plug into that. It's there on the patch bay. You know, I was able to kind of like be there in spirit, you know? Um, and, uh, and it worked out, it worked out really well. Yeah, it definitely did. Uh, I, I a couple of thoughts, a couple of ways to talk about this. By the way, uh, the Discord love for you is incredible. Um, <laughs> lots of good questions, lots of ridiculous questions about uh, your mustache <laughs> and your handsomeness and all these other things from uh, from Great. people. So a uh, lot, lot of love for you. I know it's always appreciated how much time you spend on the Discord and <laughs> love to people and the fact that uh, you get uh, rewarded by the Recording Academy. I think a lot of people are, are very psyched to... Yeah, to have you. I think that's the real reason I won, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the questions from the Discord, and it's a very broad question, and we can kind of wax poetic on it. Um, it was, I think it was uh, Frankie on the Discord asked, uh, what do you think is the skill or attribute most responsible for winning a Grammy? Um, obviously, lots of ways to break that down. Do you have, do you have, have you been reflecting on it of like, you know, what does it mean to win a Grammy? Does it mean something different? Obviously, you said that if you, probably if you'd won eight years ago, it would have felt great. But it's like, cool, I, I got to do some engineering with Eric Valentine on one of his projects, whereas this one, you really spearheaded it, spearheaded it. 
Is there you have thoughts about the recording academy? What a grand <laughs> how you're how you've gotten to this place? You know, yeah. thoughts generally. No one cares about the Grammys till they're nominated, and then it's <laughs> you know it's one of those things. Um, I, I I thought about this a lot. I had a, a good friend, my friend Michael Harris, who's a great engineer in town. He won uh, years ago. I want to say seven or eight years ago for a record, the Vampire Weekend record that he helped record. And I remember talking to him, um, just being like, "How's it feel?" And and he and he kind of felt very similar to like how I feel, where it's like it's like I don't. I don't know if I deserve, you know, there's like that. I don't know if I should really get a Grammy for this, you know? And so he ended up winning and his dad was a, uh, uh, a television producer. Um, and he was talking to his dad and his dad had won Emmys or, you know, for like production stuff and technical stuff. And his dad had a great point, which was that, uh, you're not winning for just that record. You know, you're winning for, your body of work up until that point. Like, and if you look at it through that lens, um, even though with this, with this particular record, I'm proud of it and, and I'm, I'm stoked on it. And I think it was a great record. Um, it just feels healthier to look at it through that lens where it's like, cool, this is the 15, 20 years of hard work. Um, and now there's the kind of this milestone to show for it, you know? Um, so that's how I feel about it. Like, it's like, cool. It's a great metric to have under my belt. Um, I don't know how it'll pan out professionally. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think that like, you Does know, the, the price work go just up? rains in. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm still trying to figure that out, you know? Um, so who, who, I don't know. Um, you know, it, but it's certainly, I think that the, the biggest thing it gives me is just like confidence to know that like, okay, I can go into any room and, um, know that I can compete, you know, at, at the highest level. And I, and I kind of felt that like before, like when I was in a room with other engineers, like I just feel confident. I know what I'm doing, but now it's like, okay, now, now there's a trophy to kind of, to show that, you know, and I can forget about it. I don't have to think about it anymore. Like however nervous I felt about winning a Grammy or whatever thought I put into it, like that's just now out of my head and I can kind of just get on with my life, get on with my career and just work on records. And if, if, if I get nominated again, great. But like, I, I think this is like that thing where it's a hump that you get over. And personally for my own self-confidence has just been a great, just a great boost um, and a great solidifier of my, my work in this industry thus far, you know, in my career. There were some, there were some questions about that topic, about confidence, about imposter syndrome, about yeah. those feelings. Did you, you said that um, even going into this, that you didn't feel like maybe you deserved it in some way? Was that, that's what you're referring to, this album? Totally. Yeah. I mean, just like, even from when Annie asked me to mix it, I was nervous because again, like. It was like, oh man, this is this is an opportunity. Like I've mixed records before, but never like something like this, where it felt really close to the chest in the sense that I'm a fan of her music. I helped shepherd it, but it's also like it's really in the in the lane that I want to be operating in musically. So it just felt like, fuck, this is a real opportunity. Um, and yeah, like she could have hired anyone to, you know, Tom Elmhurst mixed her previous record, you know. So it's like it was great that she had that confidence in me and, and that it worked out. But up until I was delivering masters, I felt that I didn't know what I was doing. You know, like, I don't think the imposter syndrome ever goes away when you're kind of operating slightly outside your comfort zone, which is kind of when you operate the best. I think you're yeah. always doing your best work when you're a little bit nervous, slightly unprepared. Um, you know, just like, I, I, just I totally your agree. Toes. And no, I think I totally imposter agree. syndrome, I think, serves you well a little bit. You know, it keeps you in check. The last thing you want to do is to not have imposter syndrome and to just have fucking ego. Um, and I, I don't think that solicits your best work. I don't think it makes you a great person to work with. Um, so I think imposter syndrome is kind of a, it's a healthy thing to have in, in this line of work, or at least a little bit of it. You know, you don't want to be a total, like, melting puddle of uh you know indecisiveness but yeah. you know you, you gotta you gotta have a little bit of that 
Well, I, it makes me think of what I think is, uh, in my humble opinion, the most underrated live with Matt Rad, which is the one with Peter Asher. Uh, so for people who have only turned in, tuned in in the last couple of months or something, go watch that full episode with Peter Asher. And we talk about this, and he at 77, he's won, he's had number one songs as an artist. He's managed huge hit artists. He's, produ- he's won Grammy for Producer of the Year twice, like 15 years apart. And he still has imposter syndrome. In the middle of a record, it's like, don't really know what I'm doing. Don't know where this is going to end up. Uh, and he's been doing it for longer than any of us can imagine doing it successfully. Um, so I think that's absolutely right that imposter syndrome doesn't go away. And there's a benefit to feeling out of your comfort zone. And like you said, and not really knowing what you're doing. I mean, again, I've, I've said this before in these lives, but that's part of the reason that I'm nomadic right now is because I just felt like I was getting a little comfortable in the same space with the same gear, doing the same things. And now I'm running around and it's a little bit stressful, but I think I'm making great records because of it. That sometimes um, putting yourself in a position where you don't know what you're doing is how you are going to find new things to do. Um, so it's good. It's good to hear that. I, I assume uh, even after this, this will, the, I don't know how much has worn off of the initial excitement, but I'm sure you'll put yourself in more positions to uh, freak yourself out and see what you can get into. Yeah. I mean, fuck, why not? You know, at this point. (laughs) Well, there's lots of, um, lots of good questions. Um, We could get into some, let's see if we can get into some sort of like larger concept stuff and then maybe we can dig into particular things. Um, Sure. There were, well, actually, I like this question. Uh, Ricardo asked this and, um, you know, I, I talked so much to John and, and, and then a few other guys, it, it'd be cool to kind of like rattle off some of the usual questions to you and see what your perspective is. Ricardo asked this question, what do you consider a well-recorded vocal, either when you get sessions or when you record it yourself? I think a lot of mix engineers, you know, hear, uh, there's obviously been lots of discussion from some of the John comments about compression and, you know, how people are receiving vocals. I think a lot of people that are earlier in their career are um, getting much worse quality vocals. Um, how do you think about that? Where do you, wh- what do you like to hear in a vocal? What do you think about a well-recorded vocal? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I think it, it's fewer and further between these days. Um, and I think um, the skill of recording vocal has gotten kind of moved from the engineering thing, which is like picking a microphone, a signal chain, processing that in a way to thinking more about the processing and kind of like think leading with that. And whether that's auto tune or distortion or effects or something like that, you know, and so Uh, You know, what is a good quality vocal for me is like when it shows up like raw, when I have an option of it's Mm -hmm. just a voice into a microphone with a little bit of EQ and compression, but it sounds like a voice. It sounds human. Um, That's something I struggle with where, you know, especially now everyone has like a UAD setup, right? Where they've got this unison technology. I, I understand the idea behind it where you've got the signal chain as if you were in a, in a real studio and you had Neve 1073s and 1176s and all this stuff. But I think uh, people are overcooking that stuff into the computer. So you're getting the, the worst of both worlds, right? You're getting mm. the worst of analog in the sense that you're kind of committing to stuff and then you're getting the worst of the digital sonics and all of that stuff is getting baked in. And I hear that so much when, when vocals show up to me and it's just got this layer of distortion this fake distortion um it's it's hard for me to work with that you know if i'm trying to mix that into something like my my normal tools for brightening things and making things sound natural and open or tight and compressed like it starts to fall apart if there's a lot of layers already on there so i think it's a personal question as a mixer i like to have just something clean that i can that i can start with from scratch and also if you're going to go deep into effects, like give me that option, right? So give me the clean, give me your crazy process track. um, And then I'll either try and recreate that. Or if the process track is, you know, is in good shape then I can work with that, but it's very, 
it's not very often that that process track like that stereo vocal track stereo vocal stem is um is something that i enjoy working with you know it used to be in my mind when you speak on this but it used to be that there were kind of two tiers of vocals that you'd get a well-recorded vocal that had some eq and compression or you'd get a raw vocal. And I was like, oh, I always like a well-recorded vocal, but now it seems like there's a third worst tier where people are just processing like crazy. And I, yeah. I actually don't ever really know what it's from. I don't know if it's from people over, over processing and committing to things in the box, or if it's just people using, you know, consumer grade mics and preamps and signal path. I mean, I feel like I kind of feel like it's bad mics a lot of the time when I get when I get vocals that don't sound good, but I never really know. And I guess I don't really inquire, but I find that a lot more. I I wonder what we as a record making people who are talking on the Internet can like impart on people, maybe just more raw vocals. Don't be so close to the mic. I mean, do you have like a, a thing where other than just getting it super, super raw uh, in addition? Do you yeah. Have any other thoughts. What are you hearing? Well, there, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of newer mics um, and really affordable mics, which is great, right? You have yeah, like, yeah. these warm audio things and, and uh, you know, like a Rode NT1, like you hear that, right? There, there's a very, there's a specific sound. I can, I can hear a sub thousand dollar condenser mic like that. Like I could just tell right away and it's some weird high end, right? It's the weird high end. And, um, you know, for a long time, it would be, uh, you know, these Chinese knockoff capsules and you could hear that. And now it's like the capsules are being made everywhere, but they're still like, they just don't sound good. And I think that's us being spoiled a little bit by having, having had access to great microphones. You know, when you think about the canon of recorded music over the years, you know, like the U47s, the 67s, the 414s, uh, the 87s, like these have been around for decades and decades and lots of records have gotten made. Ge an entire infrastructure of gear um, has been built around these microphones being the source, right? So this idea that you're going to take like an Audio-Technica and put it through a fake sounding Neve and a fake sounding 1176 and somehow you're going you're, you're going to get the same vocal quality as like a vintage U87 actually into a Neve console, into a, a, you know, an original UA compressor, it just falls apart. And so I think it's the microphone. I also think, um, I think the quality of modern converters and preamps is very good. So there's, I don't think that's the weak link, but I do think, and again, I don't want to call out UAD users, um, but there's something about that new workflow within the UAD ecosystem that people are leaning on. And I think they're over committing when they're recording, when it's like, why would you overcommit when you can just mess with it later and like have the option to roll it back? The idea of like printing with digital effects into a computer just seems like lunacy to me personally. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And as someone who, um, you know, I, I don't really actually, I have UAD stuff. I don't use any of the UAD plugins. I just have the Apollo. I think they're, it's a, it's a qu quality yeah. product that the console gets a little frustrating here and there, but it is ubiquitous. Yeah across the world so every city i've been in i can usually find a piece of uad gear the new x stuff as high quality preamps and converters but i don't i don't use any of the plugins uh, and mostly because i want to yeah. open up i just don't want to have to <clears throat> plug in the gear to open up my shit although i guess they've they've adjusted something anyway i haven't completely looked into it yeah but, and yeah. i don't want to throw them under the bus because i i think they're a net positive i mean universal audio oh. have been an amazing company the the plugin suite are fantastic i mean they're really great sounding plugins um even the the interfaces like having the apollo be kind of the standard mid-level converter now is great you know um agree but i just think it's that one particular facet of the workflow that i think um unless you really know what you're doing um you're you're kind of i don't know shooting yourself in, in the foot a little bit by committing to that yeah i totally agree um Let's see. There, there were a few questions about buses. Um, I, it seems like there's always questions about this. I don't know exactly why there's so many, but maybe it's something that I think people are confused or at least curious how much um, the the big the big mixers are treating individual tracks versus busing groups of drums or instruments or guitars and vocals and things like that <laughs> versus the versus the mix bus 
Do you have a general yeah. philosophy on that? Have you changed over the years? I feel like I'm doing more busing now overall than I used to with like, here's a vocal bus, here's a drum bus, not doing lots of processing on it, but generally mm -hmm. like getting my mix, running things through a few buses and then making little tweaks. Maybe I'll do a little overall compression on the vocal bus or a little bit of, you know, something like a Spectre just to get a little crunch in the mid range or a little Oxford inflator or one of those things, but generally not doing a ton to the individual buses. Well, yeah. what's your, what's your thoughts these days on that? I mean, I love, I love buses. Um, I'm, I think, especially in the era of, of, you know, hundred plus track counts, I think as a mixer, right. When you're, when you're kind of going into a song in the morning and you've got, okay, you have to mix a song in a day and you've got 150 tracks. Um, busing is just like, it's kind of the only way to stay sane with a lot of this stuff. Um, and it's also, you know, as mixing is evolving <clears throat> and you and John have talked about this and we've talked about this before where, a lot of the times I'm doing a little bit more like production-y stuff in the mix as opposed to You're getting to, like, under snare mics and you're getting... Yeah, uh, but but a lot of times, um, you know, we're just we're just getting a lot of stuff. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense where things is things are kind of more cooked coming to me, like the vocals and, and there's several layers of vocals and there's stacks. Like it makes sense to just be like, okay, all the lead vocals into one bus and then I can kind of have similar treatment. It makes automation easier. It also just makes, you know, dealing with it down the line easier. And, you know, inevitably, mm -hmm. as a mix engineer, you're going to be on the hook for stems. And so I put a lot of work into my template now where it's like, it's really hierarchical. Hierarchical? Hierarchical? Hierarchical. Um, hierarchical. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, you know, and it, and it looks a little bit over the top. And like 10 years ago, I would have been like, this looks like a nightmare. But um, it makes it very, very quickly... Uh, or very, very quick to do um, to do stems at the end. But it's also kind of nice because I'll get 75% through the mix. And now with Pro Tools, you know, those, those buses can be folders now, which is really nice. And just visually collapsing all of your buses mm -hmm. and then just having like 12 tracks, you know, whether it's your drums, your bass, your percussion, your vocals, um, and doing your final tweaks on that is so much more refreshing and I, I find myself really actually listening to kind of the final touches of the mix as opposed to just like that endless scrolling of like <sighs> what are you looking for um i've yeah. really been enjoying that and i feel like my mixes have gotten a lot a lot more detailed towards the end about it because it's so easy to be like fuck i'm gonna do a like a, a, a fun filter thing or a, a last minute delay throw or something like that. And it's a lot easier to kind of wrap your head around that if you're just looking at like very limited things. So busing for me is huge. And I do, even outside of that, I've always done, been a big drum bus guy. I mean, my drum setup is drum tracks. They go into one, one sub bus. That sub bus gets molted into three different buses. I've got uncompressed. I've got compressed. I've got distortion. Sometimes I'll add a second compression thing. Very rarely am I compressing individual drum elements. I'm, I, mm. I like to compress drums as, as treat them as an instrument. Um, it always just sounds better to me. It works better with my gating structure. Then that all goes to a drum bus. And then fuck it. You know, at some point I might send that out to another bus. Like, why not? You know, Bob's your uncle. It's Pro Tools. You can do anything. How much in your drum bus generally are you, like what percent of each of the various buses of compression and distortion versus raw are you kind of relying on? Is it like you get your mix on the uncompressed bus and maybe there's a little bit of juice on it and then you kind of mix in and blend in compression, blend in distortion or how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. You kind of, you know, they kind of build the house. Right. And, and I know that there's a lot of, a lot of good knowledge and advice now to kind of, mix with everything in you know and, and i think uh people are averse to to soloing and and stuff like that and and i think there's some there there but for me like my sensibilities especially being a drummer uh, working on mostly kind of rock indie rock music like there's just like fundamentals where you have to get something to sound right so it's always like it's literally just starting with the kick drum usually and it's just kind of working on phase like i'm checking all of the various kick mics with the various overheads what am i dealing with was this well recorded was it not recorded like okay if it was well recorded then cool i can kind of start to open things up be less reliant on gates so all of that is happening uncompressed right 
and it's just kind of getting a balance of the kit that just sounds right because if my if it doesn't feel like a drum set to me then all of my other decisions after that are just going to be i don't know getting second guessed they're just going to be more challenging um and so yeah uncompressed and then then you can have fun right once you've got the kit sounding like a drum set um and everything's in phase and in balance then i'll start trying different compressors in parallel um and the blend will really depend on the aesthetic of the song i mean some some rock music you just need a lot of compression you know and that's like stereo distressors sometimes uh you know maybe like a neve uh compressor or 1176 or something like that and then distortion inevitably just to kind of keep something more contemporary if you're using a real drum set in a modern context you're going to have to compete with samples um and so you just need every trick in the book to kind of get that drum set to pop out of the speakers so compression distortion and the buses just kind of help you try stuff very quickly Mm. Um, because if you were kind of relying on i'm only going to compress my mono overhead or i'm only going to add distortion to this particular mic it's a lot harder to audition stuff and kind of try things quickly to get to you know something that sounds exciting so you can move on to the next element it seems like yet again uh templates and preparation are hugely hugely important i feel like that's always, I, I always have room to grow as someone who's sometimes mixing, sometimes writing, producing, doing different genres, all that. I feel like I, I always kind of go like, oh, I really wish I had nine different templates for every role and I never quite get them all the way. Yeah. I it seems like templates are a, a hugely important part of a mixer's workflow. Definitely. As a, yeah, as a mixer. And the, ni the nice thing is even when I go into production, right, like if I'm doing something with Annie and and having that my mix template is it's it's kind of gotten fine-tuned but there's a, a lot of it is just having uh, verbs and delays kind of ready to go you know and certain certain settings that i like certain like i have a couple of sans amp buses for the drums i have a snare slap that i like and it's also not just in mixing because a lot of times you know if i'm making a record and i'm in the studio and the expectation is like hey these things need to sound like a record sooner rather than yeah. later then i'll just pull stuff in from my mix template and like not only is it like stuff that i'm very very familiar with um and i can i can get stuff fast but it just sounds good like it's it's past the test of hundreds of mixes right so this is like cool i'm gonna get results with this you know i remember that from i think from one of the <clears throat> discussions with baines of his tracking template which I would just assume is like, oh, it's pretty simple. You've got your vocal tracks and some BBs and some buses and you got your tune ready and your headphone sends and whatever. But he also had several tracks with different distortion and delay times and whatever. Just when they start doing ad libs, it's like, here's an ad lib. Let's try it on this. What does that throw sound like with that EQ and distortion? What does that sound? I was like, oh yeah, I should, I should do more prepping. <laughs> I should do more prepping for everything. Yeah. It's, just, it's so great in the room to just have something that sounds finished, that sounds cool. that sounds right where you don't have to go like, let me set up a track and then I'm going to put in the delay and then let me figure out which distortion it like, just, you have all that shit already set up. Yeah. And it can, it can be a little bit of a slippery slope in production. Cause I think there's part of going into a studio uh, and especially if it's a studio that you're not fully familiar with, like, you should you should allocate yourself some time to experiment with things to try the things that are at that studio that you might not normally work with you know you like you mm -hmm. don't always just rely on your own tools because i think you're if, if you're just going to be using the same sounds all the time and the same template then you're going to kind of get pigeonholed into that so you want to find that balance of efficiency but then also like leaving room for creativity outside of your normal orbit you know like try that compressor try that guitar pedal or something like that you know yeah no that, that that's that's definitely correct um there were some questions there were two different questions about bass guitar i know you've talked about this on the discord we've had some good discussions <laughs> on there um i feel like live bass guitar is always the toughest instrument to mix because nobody knows how to play live bass guitar except for really good bass players, at least coming from like punk rock world where it's just like the bass player, as I was several times in bands, like the third yeah. best guitar player. Um, <laughs> where you just play like a, everything's just playing root notes. Yeah, attacks are different, low ends different. 
do you have um do you have strategies on on live bass guitar that you can you can share i know you've talked about it a little on the discord but I just... uh yeah i mean do, do your best i mean bass is hard right you know it's, <laughs> it's like so you're it's there's a lot of problems like even when you get a perfectly played bass guitar from a super seasoned professional like you still have to deal with the sonics of the bass which is like kind of sitting in that weird zone between drums guitars keys and it's kind of stepping on everything right so it's just tough and it's so arrangement specific is someone down low on the neck are they playing up is the is the bass meant to be this real kind of melodic presence are they playing it like a like a like a melodic instrument or is it just foundational um so kind of going in listening to the bass be like okay this is just some like some homie trucking root notes uh and like it sounds like a fucking bass guitar plugged in di like i'm not going to feature that in the mix i'm just going to get it to be the foundation of the song that it needs to be um and so you know but normally it's like with bass it needs a lot of compression that's one of the few instruments that's like pretty much always going to get compressed for me um it's not and it's not something that i think you can get away with like just distorting or just saturating like you you unless you're going to go through and spend the time and do clip gain which i think you could do i've never done that i've never gone through and like clip gained every note so it's like exactly the same volume and all that stuff i've clip gain groups of things so they hit compressors a certain certain way but i think compression is your friend in this like it's the same with like a lead vocal like there's kind of two things that are always going to have compression and those are it bass guitar and vocal um, I, I like what you said too about uh, always important to think about a bass guitar <clears throat> not as uh, uh, not as an instrument that functions one way in a song. There are bass guitars that act as, you know, Paul McCartney melodic, James Jameson yeah. melodic, really important melodic elements. Sometimes they hold down subby low end. Sometimes I've actually, in some of the stuff I've been making um, with this one kind of hyper pop leaning artist, the bass guitar is uh functions for the low end in the verse and then there's 808s that come in in the chorus and i high pass it and it becomes almost like the sound of another guitar but because it's yeah. a single note it 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 sticks in that kind of upper mid range and then into like the telephone two to three k range where it just has like a, an extra little crunchiness but i literally has no low end so i have to listen to when I'm listening from verse to chorus, sometimes I'll, it'll, I'll listen to the drums and the bass so that when the chorus comes in and the low end from this instrument, from the main bass goes away and the 808s supplement it, like how do those blend? You know, bass guitar can be, like, like kind of like we've talked about with guitar in the past, guitar is, is an instrument that almost can function like a sample now, like you can, all these things can exist in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, and modern production has made it harder. Like I had to mix a record a week or two ago and it was just like, 808s drum set bass and high jangly guitar and that was like the arrangement so like dealing with like subby low-end kick drum and 808 as like the the low-end foundation trying to shoehorn in a bass guitar that's in the same register like a lot of this is arrangement stuff right and yeah. if you get the arrangement right and if you kind of minimize those factors then like you probably don't have to do a whole lot like you know you listen to those old motown records and like it's like one drum mic, one bass mic, one guitar mic, and like everything is just in its perfect place. And I don't think they were thinking about compression or any of that shit. It was just like, well, there's the bass. You can hear it. Yeah, <laughs> they were just they were just good enough. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I've, I may have told the story on the live. I definitely talked about it on the Discord a little bit and and shared shared the one email exchange but on the on the keith keith urban song i did a few years ago he had pino paladino play bass on it he's just like i want some live bass i'm gonna have pino do it and pino sent me this track it was a, it was a fairly simple part but i literally pulled the stem into the session and without even adjusting the volume it was perfect it just sat perfectly the eq was perfect the compression was just right and so of course i immediately hit him up and said um thank you so much this sounds amazing it's perfect uh, just out of curiosity, what was your chain? Thinking I'm going to get something magical. And he goes, uh, P based into my Apollo. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, he's just, and he's just listening and he's listening and he's playing the right yeah. notes. And, uh, yeah. he's probably like playing a certain, you know, like that's just, yeah. Someone, yeah. Pino's a G for sure. Yeah. P 
Pino's, like, Pino's, yeah. Pino, maybe, maybe the best alive. Um, but, just, but also, I, it kind of speaks to a different point, right? Where it's like now modern music production, a lot of people are wearing uh, a lot of hats, right? Or yeah. a few people are wearing a lot of hats. And I think it harkens back to this era of like, Pino Palladino is a fucking bass player and he's a great one. And there's a reason he gets hired. Um, and a lot of times, like, you can't afford Pino. You can't afford to hire the best drummer. But man, the value when you get someone who comes into the studio who is just focused on their instrument. Um, you know, I've been doing stuff with, with Annie lately and her drummer, Mark Juliana, is just like a total beast of a drummer. Like one of the best drummers I've ever worked with. Um, a real like, it's a, the drum set is an instrument for him and you can give him effects and all of that stuff. And when you just have someone that has a command over their instrument like that down to the tone of the particular drums or whether it's bass or guitar, guitar player comes in, they've got their effects sorted. They've got their amps sorted. Like when they're like self-sufficient like that and they can kind of make decisions for you as they're performing, um, there's a real magic to that. That's just few and far between these days because yeah records are just made differently you know um and so that that's the real magic so like with that pino moment it's like man yeah that's the dream just get a get a mono bass file from pino and it's just like <laughs> it's at unity it's and you're good it was ridiculous <laughs> well and 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 back to the very beginning of the conversation too uh, i think probably a big part of or at least a, a not insignificant part of your collaborations with Annie uh, is being someone who can do a lot of different things. I mean, the fact that some of the songs on this Grammy winning album that you are the mixer of, that you will get the credit yeah. as the mixer, were you jamming with her because you can play drums um, and you can play, you can wear a lot of hats in the studio as, as we've talked about. I'm uh, for, especially for people early in their career, although I've made my whole career on it um, as some people have specialized and I have not in the same way. Um, I think trying to, trying a bit of everything is a really important thing because you just don't know where it's going to lead. I mean, the fact that you are a drummer, I don't, you know, when's the last time you played in a band as a drummer and in a consistent way, it's probably been a couple of decades. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that you have that skill set, even as someone who's there to engineer just provides you with more. I mean, that's the genesis of a Grammy winning album, really. I mean, you know, not, not to give you all the credit yeah. or something, but just, just the fact that you can be there and be sure. involved with the artist, I, I think is hugely important. And I, and I think, yeah, on a, to further that a little bit more, like having experience on all the instruments, if you're going to be a music producer or a songwriter or something like having just a basic vocabulary to be able to communicate with the other people that are playing is huge. I, I see that a lot in kind of younger engineers, younger producers where like they don't really understand the guitar. They don't really understand a drum set. And it's very hard for them to articulate things where if they're like trying to give direction or whatever, whereas like if you can sit down and play at a Wurlitzer and be like, actually, can we go down a register? And I know that like, if you hit a key on a Whirly a little bit harder, it's going to like distort a little bit, like let's do more of that, you know, stuff like that. That And you, you just get that knowledge from sitting down and spending time with that instrument, trying to learn it, you know? Yeah, it's not, uh, it's certainly not necessary to make records, but it does give you a leg up because there are so many people who, and again, a beautiful thing, who can grab a little uh, Apollo interface and a cheap mic and make records, which is amazing. But if you are someone who is trying to be a professional or are a professional and just trying to continue your career, being able to do a diversity of things, it, it always it's it's crazy how much that stuff comes up. I mean, I remember I played played guitar for a friend of mine who's just like, you play guitar? I was like, yeah. Uh, and he's just like, can I send you something to play on? Sure. You know, may, maybe it ends up on a thing, maybe it doesn't, but just being able to have a range of skills has certainly served me very well. Um, yep. And, and obviously worked out well for you on this album. Um, let's see. There were... There were a few undertone audio related questions and I figured Sick. you you and I could nerd out on that. Uh, by the way, did you, did you connect with connect with Circuit? I know he had some questions about un, unfair child stuff. I haven't I got a, uh, your text. I haven't heard from him yet, so I'll, I'll reach back out. Yeah, I know <laughs> a lot of people have questions about unfair child's um, some of the UTA stuff. I actually don't know what the status is of what they're making these days i know there's that new guitar box that the the unity gain uh, mm -hmm. reamp thing um which is probably a little bit niche for a lot of people but those that use it i think will probably be it's probably the best thing you could ever that would ever be made for that but in terms of 
either the undertone preamps, the EQ, the unfair child. Um, you want to just riff on that? What of that stuff do you use? Do you, you have like an older version of the unfair child or what? Yeah, what do you I, use, I use it all. You can kind of see, see my little rack over here. Um, so I have a, a original unfair child. Um, so this is kind of the first batch. I, I want to say of like 10. Um, it looks, it looks like the version two. Um, but it was designed with a different tube set. Um, and originally when undertone audio started building the unfair child, the, uh, six B or the 6386 tube, which is the original very tube that was used in the, the original fair child, um, was not being manufactured and you can find them anywhere. They're really hard to find really expensive. Um, and so, uh, Garen, our friend Garen, you remember, um, Shout out, Garen. He, yeah, he, uh, he designed the original circuit to be six BC eight, which is a different type of very mu tube. Um, it's the one that's found in, uh, like the UA one seven five B couple other very mu compressors. Um, and it's sonically, it's just a little more aggressive, um, and it's it it tends to distort a little bit easier. And in the original on Fairchild, there was a there was a magic in that right where it was like uh, it was just intense. It was just a heavy handed compressor, um, and then you could use it feed forward or feed backward. There were a couple different modes uh, where you can kind of get different sonic goodness out of it. And then inevitably, those tubes became really hard to find. And then nobody was making those tubes. And I think there was a point where Eric and Undertone bought like the last of the new old stock that they could find you know they, there were just thousands of tubes in the building that they were going through and testing and the, most of them were garbage they had to throw them away really um, and then inevitably i think jj started making the original 6386 tube again um to probably service all of the new very new compressors that were coming out and so then they modified that design to kind of go be back closer to the original uh fairchild uh, and that's what the modern thing is using today. And those tubes, I mean, you know, there's eight of them, uh, and each one is like a hundred dollars, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, it's just the tubes in that box alone are, are expensive. But that being said, mine, mine is great. It's very different. I don't really use it as compressor. It basically lives on my mix bus and just adds subtle distortion, harmonic saturation. It's got a pretty gnarly EQ curve that I mix into from the get go, which is kind of fun. It's got this huge mid-range lift, and I find that it's um, it adds a, a cool mid-range presence that I wouldn't normally add in on individual hmm. stuff. Um, Where does that common, sit? Um, I mean, it's literally almost at like it's like a one dB lift around like one point five, and the Q is just like essentially full spectrum, like the width of goes down to like a hundred up to like 10 K mm. and then that goes into a set of, um, uh, undertone EQs and which I have a pretty drastic high shelf going. I mean, we're talking like four or five DB up at like 11 or 12 K mm. and it's that weird shape where there's the high shelf, but there's a little bit of a dip in the high mid range, like from three to five K. So it's dipping right, so, there. So, it, so it's not just shelving up. It's doing this like down and then exactly. Up. And it's kind of this, yeah, it's kind of this thing that I stumbled across where I did a couple of mixes with it. And before I, I shot it and like actually saw what the curve was, uh, and it was just like, man, this is, this is really cool. And it, it just got me closer on mixes a lot faster. Um, and, uh, and then when I shot, it, I was like, wow, this is wild. Am I really mixing into this for all of this stuff? But it sounded good. So I've never been like a huge analog mix bus chain guy until this year, until I've settled into this, into this room. And like, obviously I'm doing all my mixing here now. So it's a little easier to have like a static mix bus, uh, but it's been great. And it's definitely like taken my mixes up a, another notch. And how much, um, I, I know, I'm sure there's a measurement for it, but, but maybe just subjectively, what, how much harmonic distortion do you think is being added by the, the unfair child. child very very little and it's funny because i i uh there was somebody on the discord and apologies for not remembering but when I, I shared the curve with everyone and someone actually went in and made uh a pro q3 curve that mimicked my mix bus so i actually ended up using that and downloading it and now it's like when i run stems 
I'll, I'll do that so I can bounce offline. Cause it sounds like AB it's pretty fucking close. Mm. Um, and then the one thing that I couldn't do in pro Q was the saturation. So I basically used the Saturn plugin from fab filter and tried to recreate through having a graph and, and seeing what the overtone scale was just went through the presets and just got something that matched as close as possible. And it was like a very, very small amount. Um, but granted it's on your mix bus. So it's not like, you know, you're not adding a lot of distortion, but it was enough to be like, okay, you start to see the resonances and in, in the harmonic scale. And, mm -hmm. um, so now I have this like Saturn pro Q three setup where if I had to, in a pinch, I could definitely go on a laptop and print mixes and it would, it would sound pretty much the same, which is kind of interesting. Nice. Interesting. Well, also yet again, shout out to the discord for the people that are not on yeah. it. Uh, you can, you can be stealing the uh, Grammy winning secrets of yeah. this engineer. No, put written. it all up there. Yeah. You know, yeah. We'll, we'll put it up there. Put it up there again. Um, that's really interesting. And do you, I mean, you're not doing a lot of recording in that room. So I imagine you're not using the preamps, uh, but I assume you've used them. The time. That's what I use for my main vocal chain. Well, not now because I'm on the road, but that was my, mine was like a, I think it was just the undertone pre uh, with both the transformers on with a little bit of high end boost. Um, I, again, just a little bit of that shelf. And yeah. then through my, I think revision F1176, just adding a little bit of harmonic color in there. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you recorded a lot through those as well, I mean, those preamps. Yeah. I mean, they're the, I think of the modern era of preamps, they're kind of the new gold standard. Um, and I think they're so flexible, you know, people who haven't used the undertone pre's, whether it's on the, M the, uh, MPQ or the, um, MPDI four or whatever the four channel is called. There's a lot of options with transformers. And, and so you can go from very, very colored, even distorted to extremely clean class a, uh, transformer list, um, and everything in between. Um, so I just think like there's two, my two favorite preamps are wildly different. There's the undertone, which, uh, you know, does a lot. Uh, it's, it, it can be a little bit complicated or the Ampex 351. Like I think between those two, I can pretty much get any sound that I want. The Ampex is amazing because the distortion that comes from that um, anyone that's used the decapitator in the A setting, um, that is that, that distortion that they're trying to mimic. And so it's a, it's an old tube uh, mic pre that, you know, used to be attached to a, a 351 tape machine. And there is just like an endless amount of gain. So it can be super, mm -hmm. super clean, really thick kind of tube sounding to full on distorted. And the distortion that you get from it is just incredibly musical. Um, and it, it's ju it's just the best. Um, so those are my those are my like desert island mic pre's. That's awesome. Um, let's do one more question. We can we can jam it in here if we go over a little bit. It's, I'm, it's okay on my end. Um, uh, so a couple of people asked about revisions. Uh, there's one question on the Discord. Would love to hear some revision stock. How do you manage revisions and <laughs> versions? How do you collect notes and send versions? Do you send email texts? Like, do you have a dedicated platform? We transfer things to avoid, like, can you, you maybe just riff on that a little bit? I mean, there's a lot of ways to talk about this, but yeah. you kind of have a philosophy on this and I'd be curious to get it out. Yeah, I think revisions are, you know, they, they come to you, you know, some people are organized, you know, whether you're working with a team and, and they'll kind of compile notes, you get a nice email. That's always my, my preference. A lot of times you're just fielding text messages from various members of the group or whatever, and it's kind of on you to compile. So I just have a note notes app where, you know, I, I can anticipate, okay, I just sent on a mix, revisions are going to come in. I just start to like pile them into this note thing. And then I can also add my own notes because I'll be in the car or, on AirPods listening and, um, and just have them centralized. So then when I go to do revisions, there's a, there's an actionable list and I'm going through and I make a point, every revision that I do, it gets like a, a signifier for me, whether I even, even if I just say done, like if someone says, Hey, can you turn up the vocals in the chorus? I can say done. And I'll try and be like, I did, I turned it up like 2 dB or something like that. But a lot of times revisions are like interpretive, right? So people will be like, there's something weird about this or I'm not feeling this. And that's, an, that's a chance for me to kind of put down what my thought process is and what I'm trying to do. So then when I do send the revision, send the mix, I'll copy that with my notes in bold. Um, so there's an explanation of what I'm doing. Um, and that might, you know, solve the problem. That's ideal. Or it might be like, hey, 
I see that you tried to do this. I don't think it needs to be that heavy handed. Like you're just communicating, right? You're mm-hmm. giving them tools to give you further feedback. And I, and it, there's transparency to the process. Um, it's always weird to me when you get a, a revision back and it's just like, it's just a file and you're just like, well, what did you do? Like, did you fix everything? Did you fix some stuff? And I like to, I like to just be open about it, communicative and just be like, this is exactly what I did. Um, and if you don't like any of it, then we can, and it also helps me work my way back too. Right. So if I can go back and look at those notes and be like, well, I turned the vocals up two dB, let's split the difference. I can come down one instead of just like trying to wing it on the next one, you know? So, um, that's my process. It's just try to document as best as possible and just try to communicate as best as you can. I definitely, I try to say early in the process, it would be helpful if you guys could accumulate all the notes together and send them to me. And that actually ends up because inevitably in a process, there are disagreements in what people want to hear. Sometimes that means I'll do two versions. Sometimes it means, you know, I have to give an opinion at the end. Um, But oftentimes if you say, hey, give me one set of notes, whoever's collecting the notes or people will see people will be copied on the email or whatever it is and they'll see contradictory things and they'll end up working them out between them or they'll want to hear two versions. I, I generally try to, that's the reason to collect notes more than anything else for me is so that when people are, when people are giving contradictory things, they, yeah. they, at least, they at least see it. So they're not expecting, uh, you know, opposing things from me. Um, do yeah. you send, do you, I mean, as I guess my answer to the, the question of how do I send it, I just send it based on, sometimes I'll text it to people, sometimes I'll WhatsApp, sometimes I'll, we transfer with an MP3 and a, uh, oh, a WAV file. Answers? Yeah, it depends on the artist for me and what they want to hear. Yeah, I, I try to, uh, just for my own, just because I'm sending different things, I like to have everything just kind of centralized and organized. So every, everyone gets a Dropbox link. Um, and then an email corresponding. So the email titles like song revision number, Hey, here's a link, here's my notes. And then, um, they can respond to that. Or it's also easy for me to search them if, you know, if I need to search my email or something like that. But Dropbox is great because, um, I, I don't like including an attachment because sometimes I'll send something and I'll be like, Oh shit, that's fucked up. You know, like I might've like not been in the room when it was printing or something like that. And, inevitably that happens we all make mistakes and i like ha- i like being able to pull down the file i like the file obviously anyone that gets a dropbox link can download it but i like um having that last minute option to be like no 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 no, don't listen to that because especially like a version one you know that's the most important mix you send out right and i think that first impression means a lot and if you know i used to have this stupid gain staging thing where i'd have like a 10 db drop at the end so i could meter in vu and then when I would send the mix, I would have to turn off that 10 dB trim. So it'd be super loud. But like one time out of five, I'd be like leaving that thing on and they'd get a limited ref that's 10 dB quieter <laughs> or 12 dB quieter. And you're just like, no, like that can't be the first thing. That <laughs> I've, def- I've definitely done well, essentially exactly the same thing. Um, yes. See if there's one other question on that. Um, off the top of your head, any things to avoid? I mean, other than not giving them a 10 dB quieter mix on the first one. I like the idea of, of really making sure that first mix is right. Cause that's the first impression. Save as I was going to say, save as save as versions constantly, constantly, constantly. Always save as, um, yeah. I mean, live and die by the save as if you're going to try something, save as just have a, have a way to get back to something. And I think, uh, yeah, on the first mix, I mean, I think too, like, you know, it's okay to introduce it a little bit, you know, like it, it kind of explain your thought. Like I like to like get people pumped about like, Hey, I like your song, you know, like start like yeah. be human a bit. You can't, you know, like anything you can do to connect with them to be like, Hey, I'm yes. excited about working on your music. Um, here's, here's what I did. Like I noticed that the drums weren't really kind of doing their job in the rough mix. I like the direction with this. So this, this is kind of how I approach things. If you don't like it, great let, let, let's figure it out but at least there's context there and they can listen and be like wow he really did a number on those drums or those vocals or something like that and just to know that like it's a conversation i don't want someone to be apprehensive about giving me feedback you know i want to come in being like this is a service industry like i'm here to help you make your music what you know as good as possible and like it's going to take both of us to do that um so here i am like i'm on the team you know 
high. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that, that's really great advice. The uh, people often forget, especially when starting out, that if you, especially if you're a mixed engineer, you're coming out at the end of a process where lots and there's been lots of stresses, lots of decisions, lots of opinions, lots of collaboration, and you're coming in at the very end. So to come in and just say, hey, I'm here to help. Um, yeah. That's a really important, really important thing. Yeah. I think people are just so used to like, just having the ego come in gunning and just anything you can do to kind of disarm that, I think it's going to work in your favor, especially down the, especially if you're going into a record and if it's a challenging situation, you know, like you might be up shit's Creek with like bad productions or bad engineering. And it's like, man, it's going to take a while to get there. So like at least having the interpersonal side taken care of is going to buy you a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of flex and, and, and just getting the project over the line. Kian, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Congratulations again on your uh, on your Grammy win. It is well-deserved. I've been telling people for the last couple of years uh, that uh, you are the most underrated mix engineer and record maker in the music industry, and I think people are starting to figure it out. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to know you. I love you, and that's a great record you made, and congratulations on the success, man. Thanks, Matt. It means, uh, means a lot coming from you, bud. We're going to go jump on the Discord and talk some shit after this. All right. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. I'll see you. Safe travels. Bye-bye.